0: While talking about the climate crisis, we need to be thinking about more than just how much carbon we're extracting from the atmosphere or how much carbon we aren't creating by using some other form of energy, but we need to be considering the environment as well. So that means we need to conserve our natural spaces. In this interview, I speak with Mike Toffin, the CEO of Project Forest, who are planting forests in non-productive agricultural fields in Canada. And there are so many benefits to these natural forests rather than just pulling carbon out of the atmosphere. They create impacts on the plants and animals that live there. And it's also a combination of cultural benefits as well for indigenous populations. So make sure you check out this entire episode to see how Mike is making that happen for each one of his sites. You are here for another dose of climate positivity on the Green Business Impact Podcast. Here we highlight the amazing work of green businesses from around the world that are fighting against climate change. If you are ready to be inspired to take action, ready to hear some amazing examples of how we are working to fight the climate crisis, then stay tuned because this week's episode will be the perfect hit of climate positivity. Mike, do you mind telling us a bit about Project Forest and what you guys do?
1: Yeah, for sure, thanks, Billy. We started Project Forest in October of 2020. And when we started Project Forest, there are three challenges we were trying to solve for our partners, which was helping them improve their ESG metrics, helping a company meet some corporate social responsibility goals, or maybe reducing their corporate carbon footprint and we do all this by creating forests and by selecting non-productive agriculture land specifically owned by other conservation groups or within first nation communities we've started to work with some private landowners with some preliminary discussions i think that's going to be a part of the land that we work on but it won't change with respect to identifying that non-productive agriculture land and transitioning it from field to forest and then As these areas go through that transition and become forests, our partners who fund the work get full credit for it. So when we talk about all of the benefits that these spaces create for society and for the earth, our partners get to tell that story. And really our partners are the true heroes of Project Forest because without them, we wouldn't be able to do what we do. Definitely.
0: That's awesome. And so they can use that as marketing material, being able to spread word about, oh, hey, look what we were able to accomplish.
1: A hundred percent. One of our largest partners, a name that most people know at their home is IKEA Canada specifically, came on in a pretty big way last year. And now in two of their Canadian locations, they put big Project Fear Forest murals up in their stores so that when their customers or their employees are walking by, they can know, oh, IKEA is going above and beyond. I, I know for sure IKEA Canada when they source materials, it comes from all sustainably managed forests and certified wood products. And the companies that produce that material certainly have a reforestation commitment that they need to gain to get those certifications. But when a company like IKEA becomes a project forest partner and starts rewilding landscapes that really would have been left as is without our help, that's a really amazing example of a company going above and beyond. Something they don't have to do, but feel is important we're able to help companies find these locations and really create some significant impact for the land and for the people who call these communities home. Yeah, that's awesome. So what is the process of going through the rewilding of a site? That's a great question and one that we were just working on yesterday actually with a landowner just about an hour and a half west of Edmonton, a pretty cool project that's hopefully going to come online next year. But the first process is to meet the landowner again, that could be somebody like the Nature Conservancy of Canada, the United States, that just be simply the Nature Conservancy. There's a few other conservation groups that we work with here in Alberta, or like I said, with our Indigenous communities. When we meet with a landowner, we start to really understand what are their end land use objectives. And we need to first get a couple qualifiers in place. The concept of permanence is very important to Project Forest. We want to be able to guarantee to our partners, and we do guarantee to our partners that all of the seedlings that are used will mature into a mature forest. And we can't do that without permanence in place. Where that's defined as 100 years of the same land use. We don't want people to be able to transition these areas away from what we're trying to create. As well, when we have partners join Project Forest to reduce your corporate carbon footprint, they're not going to be able to reap those benefits unless these seedlings do become a forest and we need to maintain that continuity of land use for at least 100 years. So once we've had those qualifiers in place, we know the landowner is on board. can guarantee permanence or maybe we put a conservation easement on the property then we go out we do a site inspection we identify what i call site limiting factors things that would make it difficult for a seedling to transition into a forest and once those are identified we mitigate them and it can be something as simple as too much soil moisture if the soil moisture is high we'll come in there with yellow iron or a big excavator, we we'll create elevated microsites. Could be compaction. In a lot of the areas that we work at, the most common site limiting factor is competition because we're looking at non-productive agriculture stands or fields, right? Marginal haylands, areas that have been farmed or grazed for a long time. Vegetation is a big problem that we have to deal with all the time because we just plant trees and the grass kills trees. So how do we mitigate that? It really depends on the site, the constraints that the landowner. Puts upon us, and then we move forward appropriately. On our Project Forest Swan River Ecological Reconciliation Project, that was on Swan River First Nation on Reserve. Herbicides not part of the vocabulary, let alone a tool in my toolkit. So we had to get creative, work a little bit outside of the box and come up with a method to keep the grass and the other competition down. On some of our other properties where herbicide is a part of the conversation, we need to use it appropriately and responsibly in the right way. When we do identify these areas to minimize our herbicide use, what I like to do is deploy a cover crop of desirable grass, not the non-desirable, and I put down specific grass crops, what they do is I know something is going to grow there regardless of what happens. It's called site occupancy. And when we select the vegetation that establishes first, I can be pretty selective and say these particular grasses are good, and they won't compete with trees based on the way that they establish and germinate. And if I throw maybe eight or 10 percent clover into the mix I also have a nitrogen fixer so I get nature's free fertilizer going back into the ground Nitrogen's the most limiting nutrient in the boreal forest anyways and if we can do these little tips and tricks to help make that site better we will so again step one identify the landowner step two ensure we have permanence identify site limiting factors mitigate them and then we come up with rewilding plan and the rewilding plan for project forest is important I have a traditional forestry background, so I went to school to learn how to grow trees so that mills can make lumber or paper. And on our project areas that Project Forest is working on 100, 130 acre projects. We're talking 69 to 110,000 seedlings. In the traditional forestry world, you're looking at three to four species max, four on the high end. On our Project Forest Golden Ranches site, our first project, 110,000 trees, 11 different species. When we started working with our partners at Swan River First Nation, 69,000 plants, 10 different species. So like species robustness, putting the right tree in the right place for the right reasons is really important and not just trees. There's some other factors which we'll go into later, which really improve the overall project value when we start incorporating different plants for different reasons. And then after we have the species selected, we source the seed, grow the trees with our partners and plant them and then we manage those sites. As part of our guarantee to go from field to forest, there's a lot of work that happens after the tree is planted. We're not just planting a tree and walking away, We're making sure these areas go through the full transition.
0: Definitely. That's awesome. Wow. And so you're really making sure that as part of your guarantee that you're really able to follow up and continue to monitor these sites. How often do you go out and check these sites while you're monitoring them during that guarantee, the process of making sure they go from seedling to the forest?
1: Yeah. Good question. So. In year one, we're funded for the life of the project, and we're hoping to have a site that meets the project forest rewilding criteria in about six or seven years. And that basically means no more than 20% mortality across the site. We're normally planting at about 2000 stems per hectare, which works out to just over 800 trees per acre. If we do the conversions, I suspect a lot of your audience is American and deals with the material. So I'm becoming more and more fluent with both of those two things. So we're looking for no more than 20% mortality, and then a tree height at five or six years at about your chest height. And in order to get there, and you got to remember when we're working in Northern Alberta, Edmonton north, for the most part, or really anywhere in Alberta, trees grow a lot slower in the boreal forest or even in the Aspen parkland region than other parts of the world. And when some of your folks are probably listening, say year six to get to chest height," I get there in three years every time. That's just not the case. Our growing season is May to September. And really the trees have already almost stopped growing vertically at this time of the year in early august and they've set terminal bud getting ready for the winter so the trees will keep growing for another month to 6 weeks but instead of growing vertically now they're putting on more root growth and they're putting on caliper which is a fancy word for diameter. Some of the other trees are still putting on vertical growth but these conifers have almost stopped growing for uh, the vertical part of their, their growth cycle. And as we continue our monitoring plan like I said we're funded year one for the life of the forest what that means is we're visiting the site every single year, once a year minimum and doing a pretty ...intensive survey. So again, on a hectare basis, if it's a 55-hectare site, we're doing one plot per hectare, 55 plots, and we're trying to capture a really good snapshot of what that site looks like. And if we identify any deficiencies where I think there's a risk, where things aren't on track to meet our standards by year six, we're also funded for an additional civiculture treatment event. I budget for a 25% mortality across all of our sites, knowing that some of them we're going to need nothing, but we're also going to have some failures. To keep things in perspective, in Western Canada last year, 340 million seedlings were planted. That's just in three provinces British Columbia. Alberta, Saskatchewan. Now with an industry-wide 95% success rate, it's fantastic, but 5% of 340 million is actually quite a large number. So I know when I was managing these sites, when I was working for the forest product industry, we had 5 to 10 million tree plants every single year, and sometimes we did our very best to make sure they came back and it just didn't work. When it was normally unpredictable, because you don't plan for failure. They just kind of happen for unforeseen circumstances. So, with these contingency funds that I build into all my budgets, I know site one. Hopefully it's gonna go awesome, but maybe site six is a total failure and it could be. So we have dollars in the kitty to make sure we can go out and make sure that we can meet these guarantees with our partners. And that as well, to help ensure that happens, I also have an annual vegetation management event scheduled. So I do the assessment survey, identify weeds might be an issue or there's other competition factors or something. There's dollars ready to be deployed as needed on each of these sites once a year for the first six years to pass that survey
0: gotcha very cool and so you guys are just focused in canada are you looking to spread elsewhere or you're sticking towards what you know in canada
1: i have a lot of folks that say hey mike we want you to work overseas we want you to work here you want you to work there and right now we're a small organization and there's a big risk if we bite off more than we can do we'll start doing things not to the best ability of our skill sets because we might be spread too thin. So my strategy for the time being is to work exclusively in Canada and for the even shorter term, exclusively in Western Canada. We launched October, 2020. We started with one project. My number one goal, like if we were fully funded at Project Forest Golden Ranches, that would have been a resounding success. Long story short, in our first field season, we're fully funded on three project areas. So there's obviously an incredible amount of interest. Year two, this year we did our first project in Saskatchewan. A really cool place, which maybe we'll get into more detail, but that project is called the Project Forest Cumberland House Cree Nation Food and Medicine Forest. We actually didn't plant any traditional tree species, just food-bearing, culturally, medicinally significant plants for the community. That area was about eight or nine hours to the east of us. And next year, we'll be working in British Columbia as well. So in year three, in our third field season, we'll be operating in all three Western Canadian provinces, and we're going to maintain just a Western Canadian presence until we have all of our processes dialed in. Our team has expanded to be much larger, and we have people strategically positioned in both British Columbia, Alberta, and Saskatchewan. Once we've achieved those goals, then we'll start venturing further East. And my goal one day when I have a lot more gray hairs than what you're seeing today is I want to have a national organization. Does that mean we're only going to be in Canada? in perpetuity, maybe not its early days, but if I keep getting pulled in so many exciting directions, and I do know the American audience is hungry for stuff like this. There's already a lot of work happening in the United States. And I think there's room for more. And if that means we end up doing United States projects, Europe project, African projects, Philippine projects, potentially. But that's not going to happen, I would say, for minimum 10 years. Like, I really want to get things dialed in, and our process is excellent.
0: Yeah, definitely. You were detailing your process earlier, and it's a very in-depth process. You definitely have a lot of things that you go through to to make sure that everything is set up the right way so that you can execute it properly. And You are talking about having to dial in the different species that you need to select for the sites that that's a in-depth process right there could we go into more detail on that, like how do you choose the different species that you use at different sites? Like what is the determining factors? And then also, sorry, one other question on top of that. Yeah, see
1: um, if I can remember them all. If I don't. I'll
0: repeat sorry. them. So the first part of just saying, how do you determine the species? And then how do you determine how you distribute them among each of the hectares?
1: Perfect. Great question. The first thing you learn in civiculture schools. What grew there before will grow there again. But when we start getting into more in-depth civiculture, understanding the ecological ranges of where certain plants will thrive, where certain plants will grow, and where certain plants will not grow is very important. And that's what we specialize in. So when you really understand which plants grow in the right place, When I'm planting 110,000 trees and I see a little hill, I can now select, okay, maybe I need 5,000 pine trees of 110,000 trees. Those pine trees are going on this hill. And on the backside, because I know that's where the water is going to drain, I might use something like spruce, which needs a little bit more soil moisture and a little bit more shade. And then as we understand the specific microclimates and the microtopography of that site, we'll break areas up into what I call polygons. And then in polygon one, two, three, or four, we'll have different species mixed in different proportions. And then we'll train the planters on exactly what we're looking for and say, okay, guys, if willow is part of your bag, you make sure the willow goes in the wettest spot of this polygon case in point when we had our project forest school and ranches planters out there's a bunch of lowland areas and actually ducks unlimited was a part of this project years ago with the nature conservancy of canada and they plugged some of the drainages so there's areas there that naturally fill with water i don't want to plant through these areas right so I instructed the planters on these areas that look like they hold water and you can tell because there's salts that were deposited on the soils. So we had a massive drought last year when we planted, so these areas were dry, but you could tell they held water. My guys, don't plant through it. I want a perimeter around each one of these areas with willow. And then behind the willow, white spruce. And then after that, we're going to mix in maybe some balsam poplar and then some aspen. So we'll visit the site, we'll understand again site limiting factors also include all right what are my temperature ranges what are my moisture regimes etc 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 and then we build that species mix and then i build my polygons and then we give really clear and concise instructions to the planters when they're going in and if there's an area that you know can only use one species i'll create a separate polygon and we'll map it out in the field if we need to definitely and so are you using some type of software
0: to map this all out online or how are you trying to visualize yourself like going through this is like very detailed. Like, how are you, you know, getting some of yeah. that stuff? So last out. year
1: is all old school, right? We went out there, had a map, we drew on the map, we came wow. up with notes, and then we just came up with a paper report. But we're really lucky that there's a number of organizations that really resonate with the work that we're doing and are looking for cool ways to support us. And we had a couple in-kind partners that came on board this year, one of them called Matador. And they have a really awesome online platform that will allow me to communicate with folks in the field exactly what I'm looking for spatially so i'm going to be able to design my polygons right on my computer i'm going to be able to come up with instructions and when i say i'm going to everything that's going to be happening from today forward is managed through the matador platform and then my planters can go out there they can see the polygon on their ipad or their phone and they know what's going on i will always support them with maps and we'll see what's going on and where i think the next question might be leading to, I'll beat you to it or I'll bring it up if that's not where your head is, actually verifying that the work's been done. So the trees going in the ground, we have a pretty solid chain of custody process from when the seed is removed, actually from a sometimes from a government facility, sometimes from a third-party facility, that chain of custody exists, then it's produced in the nurseries and there's a harvest record. And then that harvest record is given to the planting crews and then Project Forest is invoiced based on the amount of trees that show up. So you have all the way from the seed to the invoice in the planting company. And then when we start doing our assessment surveys, we we'll be posting this publicly on our website you don't see anything on our website right now because our first set of assessment surveys are this fall Like well, your first planting season was last year right so we'll be going out in september and or october visiting the sites that were planted last year, collecting all that data through the Matador platform, and then posting everything publicly so that transparency is really key. Not only do we want to communicate our successes, I want to communicate our failures just as much. Because if I communicate our failures and then I start talking about, this is how we're going to fix it, that brings a lot of trust right there. There's a lot of companies out there that you mean maybe planting trees or walking away or in any industry don't want to talk about some of the mistakes that they made, but we can't learn without those mistakes. And when I start communicating publicly to our community, to our partners, to everybody is okay. This isn't working. This is why, and this is what we're going to do about it. I think that's going to build another layer of trust with the whole community, say Project Forest is doing things the right way for the right reason. Yeah, definitely. And
0: then other people can model on that and ask questions about it, ask you questions about it in their place. And this can really spread because we we need more trees planted.
1: The powerful thing about of the platform that we're going to be using is because it's all spatially based, my plots are going to be in the same spot within plus or minus, call it 10 feet every single year. Plot 24 on Project Forest Golden Ranches, I'm gonna have a data point that I collect data from essentially the same spot for the next six years. And then the public's gonna be able to go in and actually watch that specific location transition. And I'm gonna be able to do that on all of our sites because before we go to the field and the computer, I come up with predetermined plot locations. So we're gonna be able to really accurately and with some excitement, at least I'm excited to look at these pictures, although they're not what I call sexy pictures. It's just going to be some grass and then there'll be some trees, but it's pretty cool for me to be able to communicate that level of transparency with the people who follow Project Forest. Every site, same spot every year. Like it's cool. We're going to be able to tell a really exciting story. Yeah,
0: no, that'll be really awesome. Just to be able to see that transformation and will be really cool. Yeah. It's great. So I'd love to jump into kind of like the carbon credits side of things and why would a company want to invest and choose carbon credits for a forest versus like the other options for carbon credits if they're doing like solar panels
1: or other options like because you get to become a project forest partner of course but there's a lot of reasons and i just want to preface this answer at the moment project forest is not currently involved in any official carbon credit projects when i say that part companies will partner with us to reduce their corporate carbon footprint at the moment i'm saying we have non-marketable carbon credits i do the carbon model and i have processes that i feel are pretty tight that are going to go from field to forest and we're going to make sure that we get there and when that happens carbon is the result of doing good work but it's not the only good thing that comes when you choose a natural asset as your carbon sequestration tool versus anthropogenic one if your main motivator as a corporation or a person is just to remove carbon There's really efficient ways with man-made products out there. There's big machines. They're going to suck carbon from the air and they're going to push it in the ground. And that's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. But when we start using trees and forests as that particular tool, that story is a lot more robust and can be a lot more valuable when told in the right way. So when we start talking about all of the positive impacts of using nature-based solutions and particularly forest to be your carbon sequestration tool. You got to add in soil. We're improving the soil health. You got to add in water, like our Project Forest Golden Ranches and our Project Forest Swan River Ecological Reconciliation Project and Swan River, we're on the banks of the Swan River, the namesake river of that nation. At Golden Ranches, we're basically working within the buffered zone of South Cooking Lake so as these areas drain into their natural drainages, the water is being improved, especially as that area transitions into a forest. We also have recreational opportunities for like our grandkids. We're creating Forever Forest. These spaces are gonna be utilized for a long time. We're creating habitat for the critters. And when it's part of our monitoring process, at least when we're working with the NCC, and hopefully this will become a part of our processes as I get more and more funding, we're gonna have trail cams out there and we're gonna be able to demonstrate the different critters that are using our sites as they transition. Like we're creating homes for critters. And when we start working with our indigenous communities, and this is a point that I wanted to make sure we spoke about today. We're introducing a few more points into our plan. When we come up with a rewilding plan with a conservation group, the fundamental goal here is to transition that area into a forest. And we're using trees to do that. We start working with our indigenous communities. There's a few factors that we also want to include. So we are engaged with the nation and with the elders at times on having conversations about what are important plants culturally and from a food bearing significance that we can incorporate into the plant. When we started working with Swan River First Nation, one of the mandates, they said, yeah, we'll do this project, Mike. We want to transition this into forest, but we want to reintroduce traditional food back onto the landscape. Our community members want to be less reliant on western society with respect to having to eat food from the grocery store we want to be able to go and explore the area like our ancestors did and eat traditionally so we worked with the nation and we came up with five or six different plants that are going to be included in this particular plan so reintroducing traditional food back on the landscape automatically achieves the second ask of us which is finding ways to re-establish traditional land use opportunities for community members as these areas transition and the trees start to get established and now there's more food to be able to be collected and utilized, okay, people are now starting to use that land like it's been used for time immemorial. And as we got to know the folks at Swan River in a meaningful way, we learned that one of the really important trees and plants in that particular part of Alberta is something just called Western Mount Nash. And folks have been coming to that particular region from all across what we will refer to as Turtle Island or North America for a long time to collect mountain ash and and use it for its medicinal and cultural properties. But it's hard to find, it's not a very common plant. So after learning that, I'm like, I got access to all kinds of seed. We're gonna plant 3000 of them there next. So when we have a plant of that kind of importance and now there's gonna be a known location. This project area is only 15 minutes away from the band office. So instead of going for a drive five hours down the road and then a hike into the forest looking for a couple special plants, we have a known location of known plants 15 minutes away from where the kids go to school. So yeah. they will be able to go out there with the elders. They'll be able to go have a conversation and transfer this knowledge in 15 minutes. So when you start talking about why should we use forests as your carbon sequestration tool is because the stack values and we can tell that story in a really meaningful way, It's worth way more to a corporation when we start talking about sustainability reports and you want to improve your ESG rating and meeting those corporate social responsibility goals because trees matter, earth matters, and when we start bringing this all together, we're not just creating impacts so you and I can breathe better air and remove carbon, but we're actually impacting people's lives day one when we start creating these spaces. Community is one of our core values. And we don't want to take on any project areas if we're not going to have that meaningful impact to the people who call these land areas home.
0: Yeah. Definitely. Well, wow. that's amazing. It's so important in so many ways because it's you're not just providing for nature, you're not just providing better, cleaner air, like you mentioned, but it's also culturally, and it has so many impacts in so many different ways. That's really awesome. And I'm gonna go through a couple of the last few questions here as we wrap up. so I love to ask this question. So what are you currently learning?
1: Yeah, that's a great I saw that one. I'm like, oh man, I'm not in school anymore. That was <laughs> a fun part of my past, but I don't read a lot and i just have my phone down because i'm an audible guy so some of the That's books nice. that i'm listening to yeah. are important to me it's just a good use of my time and i've been really trying to focus on learning more about the indigenous history in alberta and in canada so there's a couple books that i've listened to you can see one in the back there it's called braiding sweet grass and when mm. i finish that one that is a game changer for me and really actually changed the direction and the way I wanted to manage Project Forest. So learning more about traditional history, traditional medicine, traditional uses and interactions and ways to incorporate Western knowledge and traditional knowledge into the way that we do business. Anything around that, that's what I'm trying to learn about. And you look through my book list, right? I'm listening to a pretty cool story called The Indian in the Cabinet by Jody wilson Rabin, where she was one of the, a politician in Ottawa and her story about how that went as as being the first indigenous oh man i can't even remember she was the head of all the legal folks whatever that i'm a tree <laughs> guy so bear with me and I'm then i got things like seven fallen feathers a hidden life of trees journeys with plants finding the mother tree those are types of things we're looking at. And then my wife and my wife and I are listening to something called The Storyteller by Dave Grohl. A little bit of everything. And that's a fantastic story. Maybe a different podcast altogether. But yeah, <laughs> definitely. The most impactful book and things that I've learned in the last year is definitely Breeding Sweetgrass. So I recommend anybody out there looking for a good read or a good listen, check it out. Yeah, definitely. Great.
0: Thank you. And what is one tip for any ecopreneur out there in the audience who might be listening? What is one tip you would give them for being able to Help grow their green business or help them or start up a green business if so they're thinking I'm doing so.
1: Well, what's worked for me is passion. And I think you can hear through my voice. I'm Definitely. really engaged in this, right? right? And if you're going to be an ecopreneur, you need to be in this for the right reasons. And like when we started Project us I was wearing a couple hats. I was doing a couple different things. And just when we launched it, COVID, like 2019, COVID wasn't even a word. SARS mm-hmm. was, but we didn't know what the heck was coming. Right. And we launched. October 2020, I had these grand visions of, yeah, we're going to go to conferences. I'm going to talk to people face to face. That didn't happen. And like all that success happened through virtual conversations. And if you are not passionate about what you're trying to do, you're not gonna have that extra motivation to reach out and just grind. Because it's starting up any new business, regardless of COVID or not. It's hard and it takes a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. And when you start getting that early success, you're like, okay, I'm on to something. Then be authentic about it and be transparent about it. You need to do things for the right reasons and if you have the passion that allows you to get that done, hopefully you'll be successful.
0: Yeah, definitely. I love that. Thank you. And
1: who is you
0: mentioned? It's Matador, right? That you're working with. Yeah. So who else would be like a really good partner for you to work with and be able to help grow your business or
1: help them grow theirs?
0: will be. Hundred percent.
1: We have we have about twenty paid partnerships right now. Matador is an in kind partner, but I like their technology a lot. They're going to really help us with all of our on the field project management. We're working with By Ernst & Young with their CSR program, and they're helping us a lot with our processes and some of our other strategy. And that's also in-kind partnerships, which is pretty sweet. Companies like IKEA, we have another partner, Pemata Pipelines. And what I've learned is that when you start a new business, you think, who your target market or your customer is. Any company that has a community and program and people whose job it is to help CI and community investment, members of a company, a platform called Benevity, those are the folks we wanna work with. We have a program here at Project Forest that's gonna help you achieve your goals, one where I'm able to prove the metrics and one where you can have like meaningful, impactful work. We're not out there feeding the homeless. We're not out there working in some of these healthcare fields. And if you're looking for some, those things are always gonna be important. If you're looking to diversify your community investment portfolio, Project Forest is a fantastic way to help you do that. And as we continue to grow, that's where we're gonna be focusing a lot of our efforts. We have folks like Bass Pro Shop as a partner, I have a company called, which owns a number of different alcohol and cannabis franchises, and folks are joining us for different reasons. And being in Alberta, we have some oil and gas partners as well. Folks out there, some of the biggest companies in the world are Project Forest partners, and one of my favorite ones is a company out of Saskatoon called Autumn Goose Coaching. When Kimberly joined uh, Project Forest family, she is a one-woman coaching show. And she came on as a bronze partner, invested $5,000 because sustainability is a core part of her purpose and how she wants her business to be run. And we're able to help with that. So anybody who's looking to partner up with a nonprofit that's out there doing what we're doing in order to help grow your business, we have tools in place to help tell your story by using Project Forest to really leverage that investment and make you a better company.
0: Definitely. That's awesome. Great. And if anybody wants to reach out to you to partner or reach out to learn more about Project Forest, how can they get in touch with you?
1: Yeah, hundred percent. You can get hold of me straight at info at projectforest.ca. Of course, there's our website, projectforest.ca. And right where we met Billy on LinkedIn. LinkedIn's where I spend a lot of my time. I was reading something the other day. Spend 80% on one social media platform and then experiment 20% of your time on the others. We spend a lot of our time on LinkedIn and our Project Forest LinkedIn page is up to snuff. And I think it's pretty good. So if you want to learn a little bit more information, you want to see some videos about our Project Forest Swan River Ecological Reconciliation Project. You want to see all of our other partners. That is live because, you know, I know how to use LinkedIn. I don't know how to use my websites. I'm actually about (laughs) to go through the second stage of our interview process for a communications specialist person because we know our website's a little bit behind and you're going to have to bring on some help because we, we need help in some certain areas and the communications specialist is going to help us get a little bit more information out there for our partners and for those interested in learning. Definitely
0: that's great yeah. yeah and I love LinkedIn too and being able to use that as a platform is always it's so key especially when you're working B2B or you're in that kind of field it makes it really nice and it's great professional network so I always use LinkedIn I, I think that'll definitely the social media platform of choice so 100% we're
1: only and we're only looking for businesses to partner i guess that's one more key point before we end it yeah it would be difficult for billy yourself to become a project forest partner and that's by design we don't have the administrative overhead to help people with five and ten dollar donations and track right. one or two trees we're dealing in significance a thousand trees is a minimum project forest investment and that works out to about half a hectare of land or just over one acre so that says all right my company i just created a forest of minimum an acre that's a big deal. And significance has always been a big part of how I want to move this forward. And that's why we're on LinkedIn. And that's why we're dealing with corporations primarily, actually exclusively, is our funding partners.
0: Definitely, love it. Great. Thank you so much, Mike, for jumping on the call. It was really great having you on here and learning all about Project Forest and what you guys are doing to give back and really rewild different areas of Canada. So I think it's really awesome what you're doing. I'm so glad we were able to spread your message here today.
1: Yeah, I really appreciate the time too, Billy. With folks like you spending some time having conversations with us, we can achieve our goal of rewilding Canada one forest at a time.
0: Definitely. I love that. Thank you. And if you enjoyed hearing about how Project
1: Forest is rewilding
0: Canada for all the reasons that we talked about during this interview, I invite you to check out this interview with Viridis Terra. They are working in tropical rainforests, so a bit warmer than what's happening in Canada with Project Forest but they remediate these soils throughout the area in their unique process and not only that but they're also educating the communities so that the community begins to see the value of conserving this amazing land so that after they remediate these lands, the local people know how to protect them. But not only that, but they be able to prosper from this land even more than what they were doing previously. So make sure you check out Verdes Terra and see all that they're into. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Green Business Impact Podcast. We hope you enjoyed hearing your weekly dose of climate positivity. In a world that constantly inundates you with the negative things happening, it can be great to take a break and hear some great things happening in the world. Make sure to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app to stay up to date with the latest and best interviews of the top minds in the green industries. Thanks again and we can't wait to see you back here next time for another hit of Climate Positivity.